This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 201. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you informed on my writing endeavors. So come with me to a world of fantasy and wonder. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 59 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and her allies have stopped the Brotherhood's black magic ritual. With the help of the immortal wizard, Murakir, Kate redirected the flow of the ley line that was fueling their spell forcing shut the door they had opened to the shackled god. Now Mercure is using his earth magic to close off the exits from the cult's secret base, trapping them in a network of tunnels around and under the underground river. While she waits for reinforcements from MCPD, Kate has entered the base under a veil spell, reporting back to Mercure on the number and locations of the cult's defenders. Kate also found the ritual chamber where the cult had opened the portal, but there is no sign of Jared or his captors. Before Kate closed the portal, Jared got a front-row seat to the eldritch horror of the shackled god. The entity sifted through his memories, taking note of the losses, the betrayals, the loneliness, and Jared's desperate wish for revenge against Malcolm Ardvalos, the vampire prince. You understand the shackled god told him. We will do great things together, Jared Tamlin. You are the key. While Jared screamed in horror, the entity tried to fill him with a portion of its essence, but before it could do so, the portal was closed. But saving Jared from the shackled god did not end his entanglement with the Brotherhood. Mistress Adrastia, whom Jared now knows is Captain Shaw of Special Investigations, came into the ritual chamber and ordered for Jared to be freed. Even though the ritual was interrupted, Jared was clearly chosen by the shackled god. That means he is the vessel, the dark messiah prophesied to remake the world in the god's image. Shaw told Jared that he is free to go where he wishes, but his status as the vessel makes him a marked man. The immortal Murakir has killed many potential vessels over the centuries, and if he learns who Jared is, he will kill him too. If Jared wants to live, he'd better make sure Murakir doesn't find him here. Short on options and running out of time, Jared reluctantly agrees to go with Shaw until they can get to safety. Meanwhile, John and Morgan have infiltrated behind the Brotherhood's defensive perimeter. They spent the last few hours playing cat and mouse with Brotherhood guards, picking them off as opportunities presented themselves. When the guards pulled back, apparently in crisis mode, Morgan and John concluded that Kate's ritual had succeeded and the cultist's spell had failed. 
Morgan convinced John to come with her and try to find a way inside the Brotherhood base. Morgan knows that the cult has been taking captives, including Jared Tamlin and Callie's mentor, Silas Kenning. Morgan knows the odds aren't good, but she wants to try to find any survivors before the cult kills them to cover their tracks. John recognizes that this is another case of Morgan following her heart over her head, but he agrees to come along with her. If he can't convince her to do the smart thing, at least he can try to keep her safe. Before we get to the chapter, I just want to issue a quick content warning. This episode contains two scenes that more sensitive readers may find disturbing, which show the aftermath of human sacrifice and close-quarters combat. There are descriptions of gore and desecrated human bodies. That's all in roughly the first half of the chapter, so if you want to avoid it, skip ahead to Jared's scene. It starts roughly at the middle of the episode. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 59 Morgan had not had a chance to coordinate her plans with Kate, but as soon as a huge, noisy illusion filled the air in front of the Brotherhood's hideout, it wasn't hard to guess what her friend was up to. While the cultists went into panic mode and emptied their weapons at the fake police cruisers, she and John scaled the backside of the building and slipped in through the access door on the roof. The lone guard at the far end never even knew they were there. The interior of the building was completely dark, but that was no hindrance for either Morgan or John. Morgan's vampiric night vision painted the world in shades that her mind perceived as red, though she suspected that it was actually some kind of infrared radiation. John's daedric senses were different, but whenever he had tried to explain it to Morgan, he'd ended up throwing up his hands in helpless incoherence. Morgan guessed she would probably never know. Both Vamps and Daedra had been using their night vision for countless centuries without understanding it, and so far none of them had been keen to submit themselves to experimentation to figure out how it worked. After all, if the Mundanes knew what it was, they might figure out a way to defeat it. The stairwell from the roof spiraled down one corner of the building, past exits to the catwalks and the ground level, and continued into the basement, which the cult had apparently used to hide the dirt and rubble from their underground excavations. A staircase descended from the main floor above and continued down into the earth below them. Morgan beckoned to John, and they followed the staircase downward. Morgan could hear cult members somewhere in the distance, their voices and footsteps echoing down the stone passages. Judging the range was difficult, but none of them seemed to be very close at the moment. Do we have a plan? John murmured. He had shifted back into his usual incubus form before they went in, and his voice came out in a low rumble by her ear. Combined with the fact that he was wearing nothing but his boxers and Morgan's leather duster, the effect was distracting as hell. Morgan held up a hand for him to wait, then knelt and lowered her nose closer to the floor. 
She took in a deep, slow breath through her nose, then another, focusing on teasing apart the smells. There were a lot of unpleasant things in those tunnels, but one smell rose above the must and mildew and hints of sewage, the sweet, unmistakable smell of blood. The air was close, with little circulation, so it was hard to tell what direction the smell was coming from. She took ten quiet steps down the hallway and tried again. The scent had grown a little stronger. This way, she said, and raced off in a near-silent run. John wasn't as light on his feet, but he kept pace with her easily enough. There were intermittent side passages off of the main hallway, and Morgan stopped briefly at each one to sniff the air within. Soon she found one where the blood scent was stronger than in the main passage. She started up the stairs, paused at a landing, went through the arched doorway that led straight ahead, and there she stopped and stared at a scene out of a horror movie. The room was about five meters wide and twice as long, with a rounded vault of a ceiling. The front half of the room was covered in the lines and figures of a ritual incantation, similar to the one in Nevenard Lido's basement, but much more elaborate. Some of the symbols had been drawn in blood, and there were six bowls filled with more blood at the six points of the arcane hexagram. Black candles, silver daggers, and other ritual paraphernalia were scattered around the room, apparently having been discarded in haste. In the back half of the room, a dozen inversion tables, like those in a physical therapist's office, had been set up in two rows of six. The modern fitness machinery looked strangely out of place amid the moldering stone and sinister rituals, but Morgan realized with sudden, sickening insight that they must have been perfect for the cult's purposes. All of the tables were covered in dried blood, and two of them still held fresh bodies, their skin ashen from having the life drained out of them. The victim's clothing was shabby and smelled strongly of body odor, even from halfway across the room. More homeless street rats, she supposed. Both had been strapped to their inversion tables and hung head down, their throats neatly cut. Dried blood clung to their necks and continued down the length of their jaws until it ran past their ears. There was hardly any blood on the floor. Whoever collected it had been efficient. Great mother, John swore as he stared at the bodies. They aren't trying to be subtle now, are they? No reason to be. Morgan said, her voice coming out hard and bitter. We saw through the vampire ruse, and they knew it. She nodded sharply toward the bodies. They were in a hurry. They knew we were close. John looked around the room with a vaguely lost expression. Morgan saw him taking deep, careful breaths, in and out, like a man trying not to vomit. I don't... I think we were too late, he said his voice thick with suppressed emotion. Gods, these people! And they call us monsters! Morgan clenched her fists, then forced them to relax. Come on. The scent of the two dead men was clear in her vampire senses, and she had no trouble following it backwards through the Brotherhood's lair. She moved with speed and purpose, 
and John did not try to slow her down or ask for an explanation. Four times they evaded small groups of cultists moving through the tunnels. The men were slow and noisy by vampire standards, and the lights they carried revealed their presence long before they could see Morgan or John. Morgan followed her nose to a tunnel that sloped gradually upward for about twelve meters, finally opening into a small underground garage. For the second time in fifteen minutes, Morgan stopped and stared in mute astonishment. If the ritual hall had been a scene out of an occult horror film, the garage looked like the set of a monster movie. The remnants of several large white skimmer vans lay scattered across the floor. It was difficult to judge how many vehicles had been present, so thoroughly had their smashed and twisted wreckage been mixed together. At the far end of the garage, the doors had been barricaded behind huge slabs of concrete. Something had ripped up pieces of the pavement, each measuring between three and six meters on a side, and piled them against the doors, holding them shut. For good measure, the motor driving the roll-up door had been crushed like an empty soda can. An ominous electric buzzing came from within, and sparks fell intermittently onto the floor. Between the destroyed vehicles and the sealed exits lay an abattoir. A sizable number of dead bodies were strewn across the floor, and their parts had not fared much better than the vans. Bent and twisted rifles lay scattered among them like broken toys, amid dozens and dozens of empty shell casings. Blood and viscera decorated much of the available surface area. The smell of the blood, mixed with the stench of urine and voided bowels, hung heavy in the air. Morgan gaped at the sheer magnitude of the carnage and at the methodical savagery behind it. Blood and ashes, she whispered. It wasn't that she felt any particular sadness that these men were dead. They had abducted, tortured, and killed innocent people. They had sought to bring a monstrous god into the world. If they had died in a shootout with MCPD or been locked away in prison for a hundred years, Morgan could have called that justice. But the memories of her sharing with Albert still haunted her. Most of these men were barely more than kids, twisted and warped by the cult leaders they followed. Besides, there were things you just couldn't do and still be human afterwards, regardless of how much the target deserved it. Murakir, from the looks of that garage, had done most of them, and gleefully. A monster, she thought. Kate has allied herself with a monster. John's composure finally cracked. He bent over and retched, and the smells of vomit and bile joined the melange of horrors in that room. He's sealing them in, Morgan said, tearing her eyes away from the scene. Murakia, he's making sure they have nowhere left to run. John spat, wiped his mouth, spat again, and nodded. When he spoke, his voice was hoarse. Is he here now? Is he inside? Morgan frowned and walked a slow, wide circle, carefully sniffing the air, 
peeling back the layers of stench for Murakir's distinctive odor. It was there, but only faintly, and stronger near the doors than on the side where they had come in. No, I think he destroyed the vans, killed these men, and then sealed off the exit. There are other ways in and out of the compound. He'll want to deal with them before he moves in. John shuddered. He's going to slaughter every last one of these sorry fucks. He looked back up at the destruction, then quickly averted his gaze. And he's going to smile while he does it. We need to find Kate, Morgan said. She needs to know about this. She started running back down the passage into the tunnels, and John followed her, catching up only a moment later. You think she can get him to stop before he murders everybody? He asked, his voice low. Morgan clenched her fists again. I don't know, but she's the only one he seems to listen to at all, and this isn't what I signed up for. By unspoken agreement, they both started running faster. Jared felt like something was pulling at his innards. It drew him backwards, trying to slow his steps, urging him back toward that dark little room where he had seen a god and lived. It wasn't a strong sensation, more like a gentle tug, but it did not let up, even though they must now be half a kilometer south of the ritual site. The creature's soft, strangely gentle voice echoed in his memory. You and I will do great things together, Jared Tamlin. You are the key. Jared gritted his teeth and walked faster. No chance in hell, he told the voice. Captain Shaw had gotten about ten paces ahead of him, and he hurried to catch up. The androgyne was a kidnapper, a murderer, and their religious beliefs were so strange they bordered on psychosis. But at the moment, Shaw was also his ticket out of here. As much as it filled him with revulsion to be anywhere near them, he did not want to be left behind. Granted, Shaw might be lying about the immortal wizard who was coming to wipe out the Brotherhood, or they might be lying when they said this Murakir would want to murder him, just because he had survived the cult's insane ritual. But their god had been real, and it had chosen him. In that, at least, they had been telling the truth. And if there was even a small chance that Shaw was right about the rest, then Jared couldn't take any chances. He couldn't afford to just wait here for the police to rescue him, when the one who found him might be a crazed immortal who would kill him purely as a preventative measure. Jared studied the androgyne as they walked. Shaw's agitation had been growing for a while now, their steps growing faster. Together with their two Brotherhood escorts, Shaw had led him first to one dead-end passage, then another. They spoke over the radio communicator with other members of the cult, communicating in some variant of old Sweelman that Jared could not decipher. When Jared asked what was going on, Shaw held up a finger to shush him, but said nothing more. They took another turn, opened a metal hatch in one wall, and climbed a cramped service ladder about ten meters up, emerging into a low, narrow tunnel. The hatch at the top was made of heavy steel, 
but Shaw pushed it aside without apparent trouble, then closed it behind them to hide their passage. One side of the tunnel was made of concrete and had a pronounced convex curve, like the outer surface of a pipe. And about ten meters ahead of them, the tunnel abruptly ended in a smooth rock wall. Shaw cursed under their breath. The immortal is already here, the androgynes said, their voice tight with anger. He's using earth magic to fence us in. The knot of fear in Jared's stomach wound itself even tighter. What can we do? For a moment, Shaw was silent, their eyes darting back and forth in some quick, unspoken calculation. Then their eyes snapped to the other cultist following behind Jared. Sophus, Shaw said, do you still have a chalice with you? Sophus nodded sharply. Yes, mistress. How may I serve? The ley line has been taken from us, Shaw said. Then the androgyne placed a hand against the wall of the pipe. But he cannot take the river. Sophus's eyes glinted, and a slow smile touched his lips. Clever, mistress. Risky, but it could work. Not as risky as facing Murakir, Shaw said dryly. Do it, Sophus. At once, mistress. The cultist knelt beside the pipe and drew out from his robes a small chalice and a knife. Not a ritual dagger, just a folding utility knife. He made a quick cut into the webbing between the thumb and index finger of his left hand, then let the blood dribble into the cup. What is he doing? Jared murmured to Shaw. Ritual magic, Shaw said, matching his tone. Be quiet. We must not distract him. As they watched, Shaw took out a knife of their own and cut a strip of cloth from the hem of their robe. They passed it to Sophus, who used it to bind up his injured hand and stop the bleeding. Meanwhile, Shaw led Jared a few meters down the tunnel, closer to the dead end. A row of narrow metal pipes, about as big around as the circle of Jared's thumb and index finger, ran from floor to ceiling along one wall. Jared wasn't much of a handyman, but he guessed that they were conduits, protecting the wires for some sort of electrical system. Shaw passed Jared the electric torch. Hold this, please, she murmured. Puzzled, Jared did so. Shaw then reached into a pocket and pulled out two small plastic tubes, each about a decimeter long. The androgyne bent each one in the middle, making a soft crack, then gathered them in their hands and shook them. The tubes began to glow with a pale green light, which gradually grew brighter as they shook them. They passed one of them to Jared. We carry these for emergencies, Shaw explained, still keeping their voice low. It will be dark. You will be afraid. Manage your fear. Keep calm and follow the light in front of you. Jared looked from Shaw to Sophus in confusion. The cultist was dipping the first two fingers of his right hand into the chalice, coating the fingertips with his own blood. He had already traced a circle on the side of the pipe, about a meter and a half in diameter, and now added a second circle around himself. A line connected the two circles, running over the floor and up the curving side of the tunnel. 
Sophus added a few small glyphs around the circle, muttering something under his breath as he worked. Jared looked back to Shaw, who had now pulled out a set of handcuffs. The androgyne fastened one end of the cuffs around one of the conduit pipes, then passed the free end to Jared. Hold on to this, Shaw said. You might consider looping your belt through it. Jared was mystified. Why? What are we doing here? Shaw smiled, dryly, and told him. Jared felt his face grow suddenly cold. That's insane, he said. More insane than waiting for an immortal wizard to hunt us down and slaughter us? Jared swallowed. Point. He unfastened his belt and looped it through the handcuffs. Then, after a moment's consideration, he took off his shoes and tied the laces in a loop around his neck. Sophus had stopped drawing symbols now. Holding the chalice in one hand, he began speaking more clearly, in a language Jared didn't understand. The circle of blood around the cultist flared into sudden blue light, which cast an eerie glow into the tunnel around them. The light traveled up the line into the target circle, and then the symbols around the circle burst into light as well. Sophus closed his eyes and raised his voice, the words becoming a chant. Shaw watched him like a hawk watching a rabbit, their eyes gleaming in the light of Sophus's working. Jared felt a tingle at the edge of his perceptions. He would not have known what it was before, but now he recognized the stirring of nearby magic. He could not see that power, but he sensed it flowing out of Sophus, filling his circle and then passing into the symbols on the wall. He felt more power stirring in response to it, something quick and lively and ever-changing, something emanating from a space beyond that curving wall. The glow of the circles grew brighter, and Sophus's chant increased in pitch and volume. In the center of the circle drawn on the pipe, a patch of concrete the size of a quarter mark turned suddenly dark. The darkness crept outward, like a spreading ink blot, rapidly filling the circle. Deep breaths, doctor, Shaw said, before following their own advice. Jared swallowed again, and began purposely hyperventilating, taking deep, heavy breaths in and out. He watched the spread of the dark spot in the circle, and tried to judge how much time they had left. When it was nearly full, he took a deep, deep breath and held it. And then a neat, circular chunk of pipe simply disintegrated, and the river rushed in with the force of an oncoming train. And that's the end of Chapter 59. Come back next time when John and Morgan rejoin Kate, just in time for them all to realize that the river is flooding the tunnels. Julia Cameron said, Being in the mood to write, like being in the mood to make love, is a luxury that isn't necessary in a long-term relationship. Just as the first caress can lead to a change of heart, the first sentence, however tentative and awkward, can lead to a desire to go just a little further. So light some candles, put on a little mood music, 
and let your muse take you by the hand. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 2,584 words this week, over the course of 4.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 544 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 336 days without breaking my chain. This wasn't a good week for fiction writing. After working on the podcast on Sunday and Monday, I had a major setback on Wednesday when I installed a bad update for Sigil, my EPUB editor. In the process of trying to repair the damage, my computer got corrupted. Whether from bad programming on that update or some kind of virus, I'm not sure. The end result was that I had to roll back my computer to a previous backup, and it took several hours to get everything working properly again. That ate up a lot of time that I otherwise would have used for writing. Instead of working on a story, I spent some time this week on other projects. I added some more information on Kate's parents to the writer's wiki, worked on the script for this show, and made some progress on a scientific poster that I'm preparing for work. I'm counting that as writing time because it requires creative effort and composition on my part, and because I had to use my usual evening writing time in order to work on it. It took me almost two hours to write less than 500 words for that thing, but damn it, it was writing. Looking back at the month of August, I wrote a total of 13,785 words in 25 days, averaging 551 words per day. That ranks 31st out of 52 months since I started this podcast. Obviously, I did not meet my goal of being super productive while Mel was away at Burning Man. On the other hand, I did keep my chain going, and for the sixth time in eight months, I met my goal of writing on at least 24 days. I spent 19.75 hours writing in August. Compared to July, my word count decreased by 35%, and my writing time decreased by 24%. I'm excited to announce that Metamore City now has a Discord server. If you've never used Discord, it's sort of like a combination of Skype and a late 90s IRC chat room, but with a much slicker interface. I've set up channels for general chat with other fans, spoilery discussion of the latest episodes, and talking about the craft of writing and podcasting. Plus, if you're a patron of mine on Patreon you can get access to special patrons-only channels, where I plan to drop some special surprises in the coming months. You can find links to the Discord server on the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group, and on my author pages at Amazon, Facebook, and Goodreads. If you're on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and click on Connect to Discord. We've already had some great conversations on there, so come join the fun! Speaking of Patreon, we have a new patron this week. I'm hoping I pronounced this right, but please welcome Kaja! Becoming a patron is the single best way to support me in my writing endeavors. Roughly 91% of what you donate goes directly to me. That's a higher percentage than for any other revenue stream I have as an author. 
For $3 a month, you can get access to sneak peeks, character bios, exclusive sketches, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. This week I shared a character bio for Kate's mother, Lisa Katane, which includes a lot of her backstory that didn't make it into the text of Homecoming. Plus, all of my patrons get access to the Behind the Episode podcast, as well as exclusive bonus art from talented Metamore City artists. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.